Good day. Welcome to another episode of the Audible Local Ledger Reads to the Blind podcast. You can get more information at audiblelocalledger.org. Stay tuned for today's reading. Well, good day, everyone, and welcome to today's broadcast of the Tuesday, January 30th edition of the Cape Cod Times. This is Doug Fagan, your volunteer reader, coming to you today, as always, from the studios of the Audible Local Ledger here in Mashby, Massachusetts. We'll begin today's broadcast with the weather But before I get into the specifics, I will tell you, it is bitingly cold outside. The uh, thermostat in my car said 28 degrees as the outside temperature coming in here today. There's a little breeze, but it's just bitingly cold and raw outside. So I'd suggest if you do not have to go anywhere today, don't. It's cold. All right, let's take a look at today's forecast as well as the extended forecast through Saturday of this week. For today, we're going to have a high of 30 degrees with partial sun, partial clouds. So that's only 2 degrees warmer than it is right now. So tonight, we're going to have an overnight note. Overnight low of 21 degrees. Again, very cold, mostly cloudy. Now, it warms up a little bit Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday. So Wednesday, we're going to have a high of 35 degrees. Low clouds, not as cold, an overnight low of 28. Thursday, looking even better. 42 degrees, partial sun and clouds, overnight low of only 37. So 42 degrees Thursday and 41 Friday. So not too bad Thursday and Friday. Cloudy with a possible shower in spots on Friday. Then Saturday we get cold again and we're going to have some sunshine, but 31 degrees as a high with a low of 20 on Saturday. So, you know, pretty cold for today and tomorrow. Thursday and Friday are your best days to kind of get out and about at least temperature-wise. Looking at the temps around the Cape, they're very consistent as always. On the west side of the canal, Wareham 28 and Buzzards Bay 28 as well. Sandwich, high of 28 degrees today. Mashby 29, Falmouth 27. Barnstable, you're going to have a high of 30 as well as Hyannis and Dennis and Chatham along with Brewster as well, and East Ham, also 30. little colder as you move out to the tip of the Cape with Truro at 29 and P-Town. Provincetown out at Race Point is going to have a high of only 28 degrees today. And unless you've got a wonderful wetsuit and really kind of a crazy attitude, don't go swimming today. Water temp in Cape Cod Bay today, 41 degrees, not very swimmable. Wave heights a little higher, 6 to 10 feet, wind direction north-northeast, 8 to 16 knots. Water temp out on Nantucket Sound, even a little bit colder by 2 degrees, 39 degrees in Nantucket Sound today. You're not going to survive very long if you go swimming out there. Wave heights 3 to 6 feet, wind direction north-northeast, 10 to 20 knots. Now, moving out to the islands, out on Nantucket, we have 31 degrees as a high at Nantucket Village, 29 at Seconset, and moving west into 
The towns of Edgartown and Oak Bluffs on Martha's Vineyard both have a high of 30 degrees today with broken sunshine and some clouds. All right, friends, there you have it. Not uh, not the best of days, but hey, we're on the right side of the earth, so there you have it. Pretty brutally cold. And again, the best days for you to go out and about, temperature-wise at least, Thursday and Friday at 42 and 41 degrees, respectively. Again, today a high of 38, and Wednesday tomorrow, 35. All right, friends, that's a look at today's weather and extension into the week. Let's now turn to page one of today's Tuesday, January 30th, Cape Cod Times, and see what we have there. And as we do that, I would say it is, I don't know, like every week I come in here, seems like uh, the week has just flown by, and here we are at the end of January already. Oh, seems like Christmas was just the other day. Oh, by the way, property taxes are due this coming February 1st, which would be on Thursday. Just a reminder, property taxes due Thursday, February the 1st. All right, now moving to page one. All right, here on page one of today's Cape Cod Times is the headline article, which says, Born Housing Authority May Equip Staff with Body Cameras. It's by Rachel Devaney of the Cape Cod Staff, and it has a dateline of Born. There's also a picture Accompanying this with the underlying statement, a plan to equip Born Housing Authority staff with body cameras is on hold after residents at meetings in November and December voiced concerns about privacy rights. The agency is in charge of 122 public housing units in Born, including at Roland Finney Place, shown in the photo above, which is in Pocasset. All right, friends, here's the article. In June of 2021, 76-year-old Paula McDonald told her son Jack McDonald that a born housing authority maintenance man sexually assaulted her on June 17, in 2021, at her apartment. That news blew my socks off, her son Jack McDonald said. The following day, he accompanied his mother to the Bourne Police Department, where she reported the incident to the police. The maintenance worker was charged with rape and assault and battery on a person over age 14, but the case was dismissed by October, according to the court. And documents that Jack McDonald provided to the Times about the dismissal. He said there was not enough evidence, but the clerk magistrate did not even speak to my mother. It was a farce of a hearing, MacDonald said. After the case's conclusion, MacDonald said his mother was so troubled by the alleged sexual assault that her health rapidly declined, and she died then on May 21 of the year 2022. So the Warren Housing Authority responds by creating body camera policy. Now, that incident prompted housing authority staff and the Board of Commissioners to create a body camera policy for housing authority maintenance, management, and administrative staff, said Thomas Spence, a commission member. The commission approved the policy unanimously on February 17th of 2022, according to documents provided to the Times by the Housing Authority Executive Director, Cara Glasso-Garcia, in an email. 
Residents were notified when housing authority staff posted paper copies of the policy to the doors of every housing authority unit on November 16th of this past year, 2023, just two months ago, roughly. And that's according to Jay Knowles, a housing authority resident. So what is the Bourne Housing Authority? Well, the Bourne Housing Authority, according to its website, provides safe, decent, and affordable housing for senior citizens, families, and people with special needs. It oversees four properties in Bourne, Pocasset, and Buzzards Bay. The authority operates under guidelines from the State Executive Office of Housing and Livable Communities and the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development. There are 66 aided that's state-aided public housing units, and 56 federal public housing units that fall under the Housing Authority's jurisdiction. That, according to Noah Bombard, Director of Communications for the Executive Office of Housing and Livable Communities. The five-member commission makes policy decisions and oversees the Housing Authority. Four members are elected, and the state appoints the fifth member to the commission. So no cameras yet, as residents voice privacy concerns. While the policy was scheduled to take effect January 1st of this year, Galasso Garcia said it was postponed. Galasso Garcia declined to comment any further. The mandatory policy was halted, said Spence, because several Housing Authority residents did voice concerns about privacy rights at a series of commission meetings in November and December of this past year. Knowles spoke to the Times at his apartment and said the policy is an invasion of his privacy. The Housing Authority and the Board have overstepped their authority, said Knowles. This is illegal surveillance, at least according to him. The policy said Kevin O'Connor, or Kevin Connor, that is, press secretary for the State Executive Office of Housing and Livable Communities, is unusual. It's unique, that policy is, he said. I'm not sure there are any other state housing authorities that are pursuing such a particular policy as this. Another complaint reported to Bourne Police. Well, while Jack McDonald admits he has no proof that his mother was actually sexually assaulted, he said he, quote, believes his mother, end quote. The case, he said, was not thoroughly investigated by the Bourne police, which he thinks could have influenced the clerk magistrate's decision not to prosecute the maintenance worker involved in the alleged assault. They didn't ask any descriptive, descriptive questions, and we never heard from them again, McDonald said, referring to the police. Chief of Police Brandon Essop told the Times in a telephone interview that he's aware of a sexual assault case that resulted in a magistrate hearing at Falmouth District Court in 2021. Chief Essops couldn't confirm any details about the case or the suspect because sexual assault investigations are private, according to state law, he said. A clerk at Falmouth District Court declined to comment about the case, again citing privacy for the victim. 
After media outlets requested information about sexual assault cases occurring within housing authority units, Essip said he asked detectives to figure out if any other housing authority residents made calls for service between 2021 and 2022. Police did flag two calls, including the 2021 case that involved the magistrate hearing, said Essip. The same suspect was named in both calls, he said. It, the second call, did not result in any criminal charges because the victim did not respond to officers after multiple attempts to gain additional information, said Essip. The man charged in assault appears to remain employed at the Bourne Housing Authority. While the man charged with Paula McDonald's assault continues to be employed by the Housing Authority, according to their website. Spence said he's unaware of any additional allegations against the worker in question, but said he did not believe Paula McDonald's allegations. He, the maintenance worker, and his family went through hell for something he did not do, Spence said. Kathleen Durant, a commission member and housing authority resident, said the commission never considered firing the accused employee and said Paula McDonald's accusations were hurtful. It ruined his reputation, that being the maintenance worker, she said. So what does the body camera policy entail? Well, the body camera system, which has already been purchased, said Spence, would run by the housing would be run by the housing authority's management office according to the body camera policy document. Spence said he was not aware of the cost associated with the body camera system. Galasso Garcia declined to comment on questions associated with the body camera system. Since the moratorium on the policy Housing authority attorneys have been reviewing policy guidelines, so said Spence. However, once the policy does move forward, staff members will be required to activate camera devices before entering a leased housing authority unit for any purpose. A waiver is attached to policy documents, which residents must sign. Residents were told, said Rosalie Cole, a resident who lives in Rolland Finney Place, that the policy is mandatory. If residents refuse to sign the waiver, they will be required to step outside their apartment and remain in the hallway until any work orders are completed. What if a job takes multiple hours? I'm just supposed to stand in the hallway, said Cole, who has lived in her unit for seven years. So are body cameras protection for staff, or are they an invasion of privacy? Well, Spence likened the body camera policy to surveillance at establishments such as Market Basket. The body cameras, he said, would protect both housing authority staff, maintenance workers, and tenants. We don't care if you've got a collection of shrunken heads in a unit. That isn't our business, he said. We just want to protect anybody from the office of being accused of something they did not do. In addition to public safety purposes, the policy is designed to document and review statements, promote transparency, accountability, and to build community trust also to deter unlawful activity and uncooperative behavior by staff members and residents, and to provide information for training and to assist in 
any necessary investigations. So, something horrific, but the Housing Authority has been anything but transparent, said Cole. They, the Housing Authority staff, will not tell us what happened, said Cole. She, meaning Galasso Garcia, just said something horrific happened. How are we supposed to trust them when they won't be upfront with us? Knowles isn't against audio and video recording in public places, such as grocery stores, he said, that being Knowles, the resident, adding that the policy is one-sided in his opinion. If you bring activated audio and video devices into the tenant's home, it's no longer a home. It becomes a police state, he said. Leave the body cams to law enforcement, or better yet, donate them to the Bourne Police Department. Spence argues that units that fall under the housing authority aren't private since they fall under state and federal funding guidelines. Commissioners approve all born housing authority policies and must be in compliance with state executive office housing and livable communities regulations, said Bombard. The state agency has no policies or regulations governing the use of body cameras at local housing authorities, Bombard wrote in an email to the Times. Connor, the press secretary for the state housing agency, said state council would need to review the policy to see if it violates residents' privacy rights. Durant said Commission and Housing Authority staff members have been outlining policy guidelines since Paula McDonald made her allegations against the worker. She feels confident in their decision. As a resident, I don't have a problem with the policy whether I'm home or not home, she said. I don't feel like anyone is spying on me as I have nothing to hide. So, we may never know what really happened. Jack McDonald doesn't feel one way or another about body cameras, but he's concerned that those who are speaking up about alleged sexual assault, as did his mother, at the hands of Housing Authority staff, are not being heard. Until the time of her death, he said, his mother remained terrified of being assaulted again. My mother was not a perfect resident. But she had to continue to live in her apartment, and that guy had a key to everything, Jack said. We may never know what really happened, but victims do need support and help. All right, that's the end of that article, friends, about the controversy regarding the invocation of a policy to allow maintenance, administrative staff, and others at the Bourne Housing Authority to be equipped with body cameras, and whether it is or is not an invasion of residents' privacy rights. And that now has been turned over to council as the commission continues to ponder the policy. All right, that is the only article of local or regional interest on page one, so let's move now to the Cape and Islands page on page three to see what, if any, local articles exist there. And here yet, among many ads and pictures, we find an article that does reflect local interest, and it's entitled, Photos Show Erosion Toll at Coast Guard Beach Over Half a Century. This article is by Eric Williams of the Cape Cod Times staff, and here it is. It's also accompanied by a picture, and underlying that picture, it says Coast Guard Beach, shown in the photo, 
and Nosset Light Beach in East Ham. Typically see erosion due to longshore sediment transport and the creation of parabolic dunes, according to Lindsay French, a Cape Cod National Seashore visual information specialist. It's part of the normal erosion cycle, but as storms grow more intense, more damage can certainly occur, said French. So, back to the article. Erosion has a finicky appetite on Cape Cod. Sometimes it's a series of hard-to-notice nibbles over the years, and sometimes when storms kick up, it can devour large chunks of terrain in a very few hours. It can be tricky to keep track of how things have changed over the years. But when images of an area are compared over time, it's easy to see just how hungry erosion can be. The Cape Cod National Seashore recently posted a pair of images on their Facebook page that offer a breathtaking look at how erosion has affected particularly Coast Guard Beach in East Ham. The earlier Post Guard image, drawn from the 1960s, is part of the East Ham Historical Society collection. It shows a landscape that includes a large parking lot south of the former Coast Guard building and a sizable green lawn between the building and the sea. This is juxtaposed with an aerial National Park Service image from the year 2014, roughly 50 years after the first image was being examined. The parking lot is gone, and the former Coast Guard building is much closer to the ocean. Lindsay French, visual information specialist at the seashore, helped put the changes into perspective in an email to the Cape Cod Times. Coast Guard Beach and Nosset Light Beach specifically, typically, see a decent amount of erosion due to longshore sediment transport and the creation of parabolic dunes, wrote French. It's part of the normal erosion cycle, but as storms grow more intense, obviously more damage can occur. So how much of the bluff has been lost in East Ham? Well, according to French, the bluffs lose about 3 to 5 feet per year, more so if we get a particularly bad storm. For example, in the recent January 14th and 15th, 2024 storm, those bluffs, that's just a couple weeks ago, those bluffs saw several feet of loss in that one weather event alone. Assuming that the postcard image dates from about 1965, French estimated that the shoreline has probably lost anywhere from 177 to 295 feet in the past 59 years, give or take a few feet. France also noted that the legendary storm known as the Blizzard of 1978 took out a much larger than average chunk of the landscape at Coast Guard Beach. That larger than average chunk in 78 included the parking lot seen in the image from the 1960s. Coast Guard parking lot gone. Outermost house is washed away, was the headline on a February 10, 1978 story in the Cape Codder newspaper that reported, quote, all parking spaces at Coast Guard Beach in Eastham had been permanently claimed by the Atlantic Ocean, end quote. And it wasn't just the parking lot that was hard hit. 
To the south, beyond the remains of the parking lot, the sea and gulf structures on what remained of the Nauset Spit, according to Cape Codder articles. A seashore history of Coast Guard Beach adds this description of the 1978 storm, quote, Waves repeatedly swept over most of Nauset Spit as well. In the process, four houses were destroyed, including the outermost house, made famous by Henry Beston's book of the same name. End quote. The dramatic changes that have occurred over a few decades may make you wonder about the geological future of the Cape. It may be best not to look too far ahead and thus enjoy what we have now. According to a geologic history of Cape Cod produced by the U.S. Department of the Interior and the U.S. Geological Survey, quote, at some distant time, not for many generations, however, Cape Cod will be nothing more than a few low sandy islands surrounded by shoals, end quote. Well, that's a little intimidating, to say the least, especially for those of us who currently live here. Anyhow, there's that article that shows you about the erosion, specifically at Cape Cod uh, Coast Guard Beach, over the last half a century. All right, let's move on. Before tackling our next article, let's first take a look at the most recent lottery results here in Massachusetts and across the country. The Mega Millions drawing... The jackpot is up to $311 million, obviously meaning no one has recently won that. Also, Powerball is up to $188 million, again implying that no one has recently won that jackpot. So let's take a look at some of the winning numbers. First, taking a look at the numbers game for yesterday. The midday drawing numbers were these. 2973. Again, midday numbers for yesterday, 2973. In the evening drawing for the numbers game, the numbers drawn there were 9396. 9396 for yesterday's evening drawing of the numbers game. For those of you playing Mass Cash, again yesterday, January 29th, those numbers were these 5, 13, 20, 31, 34. 5, 13, 20, 31, 34 for mass cash. Powerball also drawn yesterday. Again, obviously no one won that pot. Here are those numbers. 39, 41, 43, 49, 64, and a Powerball number of 4. Again, Powerball yesterday. 39, 41, 43, 49, 64, Powerball of Four. And last Friday, the 26th of January, the Mega Millions drawing was held for its most recent draw, and those numbers were these 14, 31, 34, 50, 61, and a Mega Ball of 13. Again, Mega Millions from last Friday 14, 31, 34, 50, and 61, and a Mega Ball number of 13. And finally, the Mega Bucks drawing, which was held again yesterday, the 29th of January. Here are those numbers. 3, 15, 18, 25, 33, and 40. Mega Bucks yesterday. 3, 15, 18, 25, 33, 
and uh, 40. All right, friends, there you have it. And for those of you who continue to play, I say as I always do, good luck, players. All right, now moving on, there's another article here on page three of the Cape Cod Times for today, January 29th, and its title says, Musician's Drummer. Frank Shea, Cape Cod jazz icon, dies. It's by Gwen Friss of the Cape Cod Times Network. And here's the article. Jazz drummer Frank E. Shea, that's spelled S-H-E-A, who played weekends in the 70s and 80s at the Columns in Dennis with the Lou Colombo Band and other greats, has died at age 93. He became the first called drummer for the Cape said John A. Basile, author of Cape Cod Jazz, From Colombo to the Columns. Frank was in such demand. He was always the guy you called first when you needed a drummer, Basile said. He was such a musical drummer, always supporting and driving the band. Saxophonist Bruce Abbott, a longtime friend and colleague of Shea's, emailed to the Times. Abbott, who lives in Brewster but was traveling in Vietnam, emailed comments when contacted after his friend's January 20th death. I loved hearing his stories and perusing the scrapbooks from his life in jazz, Abbott wrote. We spent many hours listening to and discussing music, and I continue to be inspired by his insight. That was his gift to me. Frank was a musician's drummer, Basile, who has a chapter about Shea in his 2017 book, said he could play a lot of styles of jazz. He told me the most important thing was to make everyone in the band feel comfortable. Before coming to the Cape to raise his four children in the 70s, Shea toured with the Treniers, that's T-R-E-N-I-E-R-S, a well-known rhythm and blues swing band, and even did guest performances on TV variety shows. Shea's youngest daughter, Catherine Shea of Florida, said her father always rooted for the underdog, including the many friends and colleagues who were black musicians and faced segregation when touring in the South. My father was beat up many a time for being a white guy in a black band, she said. He was often the one who had to get off the bus and get all the food because his black friends were not allowed in the restaurant. She said her father got beat up one time when he walked into a colored-only restroom to protest segregation. Black culture, community, and music is what he was drawn to and influenced by. It's definitely part of his story, said his daughter. So he was a self-taught musician. Born and raised in Bridgeport, Connecticut, Shea fell for the sounds of jazz and big band music early, and by his early teens, the self-taught musician realized his innate talent. He picked up drumsticks and never put them down. At their dinner table, he would have a drum pad and sticks. It's all he knew. And he raised a family on it. He played professionally up until his 80s, Shea said. Shea's wife, of more than half a century, Shirley A. Shea, said her husband lived for his music and his his family. He played at the Collins, the captain's table, Witchmere Club, she said. People liked my husband because he was a nice man. She recalled a time when Tony Bennett was playing Cape Cod and sent a band member to recruit Frank Shea for the tour. Shea declined, said, saying he did not want to leave his family. He was a great father. He was a great father, and he encouraged our children to do whatever they loved and were good at, said Shirley Shea, who had 
three little ones of her own when she and Frank met and married in Chicago in 1967. The couple later had a daughter of their own, Catherine. The Shea's son, Mark Ayala, and his wife, Melissa, own the Little Capistrano bike shop in East Ham, and he sells wood carvings, a skill his father urged him to pursue. After living in Florida, Frank and Shirley moved back to the Cape in 2013, retiring to Orleans, until Frank's health required a move to Plymouth Rehabilitation and Health Care Center. Older folks on the Cape would remember him, Basile said. These were guys that were part of another great musical generation. All right, there you have it. The death of renowned jazz drummer Frank E. Shea at age 93. All right, friends, at this point, we are just a couple minutes past the halfway point of our broadcast for today, January 29th. And let's now turn to the obituary page. Our first obituary is that of Claire Warren, spelled W-A-R-R-E-N. And here is her obituary. Claire Martha Warren of South Dennis, Mass., passed away peacefully with her family at her side on Wednesday, the 24th of January. Claire was in her 90th year of an active, fulfilling life. Claire is survived by her beloved husband of 65 years, John, as well as her children, Mary Elizabeth, Francis, and Thomas, along with 11 grandchildren and two great-grandchildren. She was predeceased by her son, Jack. Claire was a competitive athlete and talented artist, seamstress, and knitter. She was always keen on improving. She was passionate about her tennis game and tolerated golf, but she did score a hole-in-one at the Island Club on Marco Island, Florida. She was an ardent bridge player and was always up for a card game of pitch on a summer night on the Cape. After years of successful motherhood, Claire and Jack had the time to visit Colorado, Norway, Kenya, Paris, and Rome, the tennis mecca Wimbledon as well, and spent many relaxing years on Marco Island, Florida. Among Claire's greatest joys was that of her role as mother, grandmother, and great-grandmother. In honor of Claire's athletic achievements, those who may wish to donate to her granddaughter Juliana's charitable cause in running the Boston Marathon, you can do that by making a contribution to that endeavor. Friends and family are invited to a funeral service to be held at the Hallett Funeral Home in South Yarmouth on Friday, this Friday, February the 2nd. Visiting hours are from 10 a.m. to 12 noon. Funeral services will begin at noon. All right, there you have it, the obituary of Claire W. Warren. Our next obituary to the Times today is that of Joseph Quetti, I hope I'm pronouncing that right, it's spelled Q-U-E-T-T-I, has a date line of East Falmouth. Joseph Quetti, 61, of Falmouth, died suddenly on Tuesday, January the 23rd, in Mashby. Joey was born on February 18, 1962, and grew up in Richmond, Massachusetts. He was a graduate of Taconic High School and learned the auto body trade from his father, Big Joe. 
Father and son worked side-by-side at Quetty Auto Body for many years. Joey was an avid outdoorsman who enjoyed hunting and fishing. As a young boy, he loved motocross, water skiing, and snowmobiling with his friends. Later in life, Joey left the auto body business to pursue the masonry and landscaping trades. When he was a child, Joey's family traveled to Cape Cod every summer for vacationing, and he always loved being close to the ocean. A number of years ago, Joey and his longtime partner, Sue Haas, decided to move to Falmouth and started a successful business called JNS Landscaping. Joey was a dog lover who always had a golden retriever by his side. His latest pup, Pirate, always tagged along while Joey was working, making friends wherever he went. Joey is survived by his partner, Susan Haas, his twin sons, Jason and Justin, and his part and his partner Shannon Handlowich. A memorial service will be held in Richmond, Mass in the summer of this year twenty twenty four. Memorial donations may be made to the Mashpee Fire and Rescue Department of Mashpee, Mashpee, twenty Frank Hicks Drive in Mashpee. Or the Yankee Golden Retriever Rescue Fund, 110 Chapin Road in Hudson, Massachusetts. All right, there you have it. That is the obituary of Joseph Quetty of East Falmouth. And those appear to be our only two obituaries in today's. All right, now let's move to the lighter side. Uh, well, sometimes the lighter side, sometimes it's a little emotional, sometimes very confusing. And that is a reference to the Ask Carolyn column, where, as most of you know, people from the outside write into Carolyn Hacks, H-A-X, seeking her advice on what they should do about their personal problems or issues. And this first article says, How should Dad talk to kids about a traumatic childhood? And here is the article. The first letter says, Dear Carolyn, My husband had a very traumatic childhood. His parents were abusive addicts who died violently. He grew up into a remarkable functioning adult, and he is a wonderful husband and dad. He has never told our kids, who are now 11 and 13, much about his past, but that only his parents had died early. Recently, he's been revealing a little more, but only in an abrupt sarcastic way. For example, when our daughter incessantly complained about her bedroom, he finally responded, quote, at least you aren't in a homeless shelter like I was in the eighth grade, end quote. Daughter was understandably taken aback and asked me later if he was joking. Our son's your mom jokes end up in dark places too. I'm thinking that maybe it's time he shared more of his story with them. He's said he's willing, but he doesn't know how to actually talk about it. He's never wanted to invite pity or to scare the kids. And so, it only comes out in these occasional snarky comments. Dark humor has always been one of his lifelines. Any advice for how to handle uh, or to offer this information appropriately? Signed, In the Dark. And here's Carolyn's response. Yes, it's time. And yes, there's an easy entry into this topic. Now that your husband has snarked a hole in whatever image he created of his childhood for them. 
That comment I made the other day about being in a homeless shelter, I realized, that, I realized afterwards that it's time to share my story with you, he could say. Then he can give a simple declarative version of the event. I was in a shelter, for example, like I said, in eighth grade. That was just one of the many tough times in my childhood since my parents were addicts. Then he can connect them to now with a hopeful and pragmatic message, such as, I did X and Y to get where I am now, and Z helped me too, for which I am thankful. And then he can share his decision process on talking about it. For example, I've kept an eye out for you your whole lives for the right time to tell you this, and now seemed right. Maybe it is the time. Then he can invite them to ask questions. This is how kids let adults know what they're ready to hear and process. It's not a perfect system, but it does allow them to drive the conversation with their own age-informed curiosity. It's important, though, to make it clear that you and their dad want them to ask questions, even the uncomfortable ones. Kids who do not understand something fully or, or who aren't ready yet often follow bizarre paths of their own conjured logic to some pretty wild conclusions. Encouraging transparency is your best chance at keeping them on a factual path. For questions you and he aren't prepared to answer, just respond, I need to think about that before I answer that question. I will bring it up again when I'm ready. Just make sure you keep that promise because you lose precious credibility if you say later as a dodge. If you ultimately decide not to answer, then I'm just not comfortable talking about that is something that could be said even days later. It's both respectful of and excellent modeling for your kids. A therapist can help you prepare for this and see it through and see you through it if necessary. Well, that's interesting. And somewhat, for a change, pretty good logic and a seemingly an excellent response to a rather uh, interesting question and dilemma. So kudos to Carolyn for that. All right, now we're moving. All right, friends, having exhausted the articles relative to local and regional or state interest, let's take a look now at some things that are affecting us nationally. And this first article says, as a headline, attacks show troops risks in the Mideast. Over 40,000 U.S. personnel are stationed in the region, and this is a USA Today article, and here it is. President Joe Biden's vow to swiftly respond to the weekend's drone attack that killed three U.S. troops and injured 34 others highlights more than just the harsh reality that violence has spread across the Middle East among and amidst the war in Gaza. It also spotlights the risk faced by more than 40,000 U.S. troops deployed at multiple Mideast locations, as well as in many more parts of the world than Americans may even know about. Biden accused, quote, radical Iran-backed militants, end quote, in Iraq and Syria for Saturday's attack on Tower 22, which is a U.S. military outpost in Jordan near the border with Syria. The Islamic resistance in Iraq claimed responsibility for the attack. The group is a loose coalition of militias 
supported by Iran that oppose U.S. support for Israel in the war in Gaza and American involvement in the region more broadly. Iran denies any involvement in the weekend drone attack on the U.S. troops. They were not the first U.S. military deaths in the region since Hamas's October 7 attack on Israel. Two U.S. Navy SEALs went missing and are presumed dead following an operation on January 11 when they attempted to board a ship off the coast of Somalia suspected of delivering Iranian weapons to Houthi rebels in Yemen. Other incidents have involved U.S. troops since October the 7th. Iran-aligned militias have attacked U.S. troops with rockets, missiles, and drones more than 150 times since the start of the Israel-Hamas war, according to the Pentagon. While Saturday's fatal incident marked the first time U.S. troops have actually been killed in one of these attacks, others have come fairly close to that dramatic end. To cite just a few... On October 18th, U.S. forces in Iraq were targeted in two separate drone attacks. One of the drones was intercepted but still exploded, causing minor injuries. A day later, U.S. forces in Syria suffered minor injuries in another drone attack. Later that same month, a drone penetrated U.S. air defenses and crashed into a barracks in Iraq, housing American troops but failed to detonate. One U.S. service member did suffer a concussion in that attack. On Christmas Day last year, one U.S. service member was left in critical condition and two more were wounded in a drone attack in Iraq. On January 20 of this year, four U.S. soldiers suffered traumatic brain injuries after Iran-backed militias filed multiple powerful ballistic missiles and rockets at an air base in Iraq. So where are U.S. troops stationed in the Middle East? About 2,500 U.S. troops are based in Iraq and 900 in Syria. The Pentagon says they are there to prevent a resurgence of the Islamic State to act as a deterrent. Iraq wants troops on its soil to leave because it views them as destabilizing for the country and the region, though it has not set a deadline for removal of such troops. U.S. critics such as Benjamin Friedman policy director of the Washington-based Defense Priorities Think Tank, say the soldiers who were killed and wounded should not have been there in the first place. The militia that killed U.S. forces should be held accountable, but we should ask why U.S. forces are in the area. They were left in range of repeated drone and missile attacks. What cause justified this predictable danger? The answer is none. The U.S. government put them in harm's way in service of a murky and pointless mission. So he said, following Hamas's attack on Israel, the Pentagon scrambled two aircraft carrier groups with approximately 7,500 military personnel aboard each to the Middle East. U.S. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin ordered 2,000 troops to be ready to deploy to the region, They are though, though they are not likely to serve in combat role. Thousands of U.S. troops are stationed in Bahrain, 9,000 that is, Kuwait has 13,000 and Qatar 8,000, along with a few thousand each in Jordan, Saudi Arabia, and the United Arab Emirates. The Pentagon does not consistently release precise totals, and most figures are estimates based on media releases and statements from the White House. 
There are, however, reports that the U.S. maintains a classified military base in Israel's Negev Desert, codenamed Site 512. If true, it could be as close as 20 miles from Gaza. It's thought to be a radar site for monitoring missile activity. A subline into this next paragraph says hundreds of thousands of U.S. troops are overseas. As of 2022, about 220,000 U.S. military and civilian personnel were serving in more than 150 countries, according to the U.S. Defense Department. And they are up to 800 U.S. military bases overseas, according to data from the Pentagon and from David Vine, an anthropologist and expert on U.S. military at American University. The vast majority of U.S. military personnel overseas are not engaged in actual fighting. In Germany, about 45,000 Americans go to work each day around the Kaiserslautern military community, a network of U.S. Army and Air Force bases that accommodate schools, housing complexes, dental clinics, hospitals, community centers, sports clubs, food courts, military police, and retail stores. About 60,000 American military and civilian personnel are stationed in Japan and another 30,000 in South Korea. More than 6,000 U.S. military personnel are spread across Africa, that according to the Defense Department. Still, nearly a quarter century after the U.S. launched its response to 9-11, the Pentagon continues to pursue military actions in the Middle East and in many more parts of the world than Americans may realize, this according to data from research by the Costs of War Project at Brown University's Watson Institute. From 2021 to 2023, the first three years of the Biden administration, the U.S. military countered out, carried out counterterrorism operations in 78 countries. These globe-spanning operations saw U.S. troops engaged in direct combat, combat, launching drone attacks, patrolling borders, gathering intelligence, and training other nations' militaries. It makes U.S. forces vulnerable to attack, and obviously increases the likelihood of the U.S. engaging in a much bigger offensive war, Brown researcher Stephanie Savell previously told USA Today. Okay, friends, there's an article about the deployment of troops throughout the Mideast and other parts of the world by the United States. This next article is from page one of today's January 29th, Cape Cod Times. It says the Fed faces expectation for rate cuts. It's accompanied by a picture of Federal Chair Jerome Powell says the Fed doesn't make political considerations, but rather, quote, we think about what's the right thing to do for the economy, end quote. This article is by Christian Rugeber of the Associated Press, and it's got a subtitle of Inflation Seemingly in Check as the Board Meets. And here's the article with the dateline of Washington, D.C. Federal Reserve Chair Jerome Powell will enter this week's Federal Reserve meeting in a much more desirable desirable position than he likely ever expected. That being, inflation is getting close to the Fed's target rate. The economy is still growing at a healthy pace, consumers keep spending, and the unemployment rate is near a half-century low. A year ago, most economists had envisioned a much darker outlook. 
As the Fed raised interest rates at the fastest pace in four decades to fight high inflation, most economists warned of a recession, possibly a painful one, with waves of layoffs and rising unemployment. Even the Fed's own economists had projected that the economy would sink into a recession in 2023. The unexpectedly rosy picture one that's sure to be subject to heated debate in the 2024 presidential race, may have left some Fed officials saddled by uncertainty. With their frameworks for assessing the economy upended by the pandemic and its aftermath, it's hard to know whether the economy's healthy conditions can endure. It almost feels like what we saw in the second half of last year was too good to be true, said Nathan Sheets, chief global economist at Citi and a former Fed economist. When things are too good to be true, you want to try to scratch the surface and say, how durable is this? Well, some Fed officials have raised similar questions and expressed caution about their next move. When they last met in December, the Fed's 19 policymakers who participate in interest rate decisions said they expected to cut their benchmark rate three times this year. Yet the timing of those rate cuts, which would lead to lower borrowing costs, remains uncertain. Most economists say they expect the first rate cut to occur in May or June, though a cut at the Fed's March meeting is not off the table. The timing of rate cuts will almost certainly be the top issue at the Fed's two-day meeting, which ends this Wednesday, that being tomorrow. The Fed is all about all but sure to announce after the meeting that it's leaving its key rate unchanged at about 5.4%, where it has stood since July, the highest point in 22 years. The Fed's consideration of rate cuts is taking place against an intensifying presidential campaign as President Joe Biden seeks re-election with the economy a polarizing issue, rate cuts have the potential to provoke an attack from former President Donald Trump, who nominated Powell to be Fed chair but later publicly assailed him for raising rates during the Trump presidency and demanded that he lower them. At a news conference last month, Powell said, We don't think about politics. We think about what's the right thing to do for the economy. On Wednesday, the Fed's policymakers could signal that they're close to cutting rates by adjusting the language in the statement they issue after each meeting. In December, the statement still suggested that the officials were willing to consider more rate increases. Removing or altering that language in next week's statement would signal that they're shifting to a new approach that based on rate cuts. The Fed's aggressive streak of 11 rate hikes beginning in March of 2022 was intended to tame inflation, which peaked in June of 2022, according to the central bank's preferred gauge at 7.1%. But data released last Friday showed that over the past six months, inflation has fallen all the way back to the Fed's 2% annual target level. In the past three months, Year over, over, inflation that excludes volatile food and energy costs has dropped to just 1.5%. Yet, Fed officials are expected to wait for at least a few months to try to build confidence that inflation has been truly beaten before they actually start reducing interest rates.
Christopher Waller, an influential member of the Fed's governing board, sounded a note of caution in a recent speech. Quote, inflation of 2% is our goal, he said, but that goal cannot be achieved for just a moment in time. It must be sustained, end quote. Waller has previously referred to having been head-faked on inflation, one more on more than one occasion when initial government reports had indicated that inflation was falling. Subsequent revisions to the data showed that price increases actually remained high. It's possible that inflation could stay undesirably high, especially if the economy remains strong, which could cause the Fed to leave rates unchanged. Fed officials have said that as long as the economy stays healthy, they can take time before cutting rates. Average paychecks are still increasing about 4 to 4.5% annually, and apartment rental prices are still rising faster than they did before the pandemic. Officials expect rent prices to cool as a slew of new apartment buildings are completed, but that has yet to show up in the official data. And some prices in the service sector, such as for restaurant meals, are still accelerating. We would argue we're not out of the woods yet, said Tiffany Wilding, a managing director and economist at PIMCO. The Fed does not want to be Arthur Burns, she added, referring to the Fed chair from the 1970s who was widely blamed for cutting rates too soon and allowing inflation to become more deeply entrenched in the economy. At the same time, the Fed is grappling with an equivalent risk in other direction, that it might keep its key rate too high for too long and thus potentially trigger a recession. Consumers spent at least a healthy pace in the final three months of last year, but they could eventually pull back in the face of higher borrowing costs and prices that are still well above where they were three years ago. All right, there you have it on what the federal board may do with regard to consideration of interest rate cuts for the near future. So we'll all be following that rather closely in the weeks and months. Well, friends, as we conclude our broadcast, a quick reference to sports. As you know, the San Francisco 49ers came from a 17-point deficit to defeat the up-and-coming Detroit Lions. And they, along with the Kansas City Chiefs, who defeated the favored Baltimore Ravens, those two teams, the Chiefs and the 49ers, will participate in Super Bowl 48 on February 11th at 6.30 p.m. And a reminder of another date that affects us all, property taxes are due Thursday, February the 1st. Okay, friends, that pretty much does it for today's broadcast of today's January 29th, Cape Cod Times. It's been my pleasure to read to you today, and I'm looking forward to reading for you again next week. This is your volunteer reader, Doug Fagan, saying goodbye to you for today and wishing you a safe and healthy day and week ahead. Talk to you in the very near future. So long for now.